Good morning, First Baptist Church of Greg Abels. Uh, welcome to our online service. I hope you all have had a tremendous week. Um, I hope you know how much we love you, and hopefully you've been reached out to and, and reminded by your church family uh, how much we miss you if you're unable to attend our services due to the pandemic. Uh, there are a couple things I wanted to announce before we just jump into the sermon this morning. One is uh, our deacon nomination meeting was actually postponed from a couple weeks ago uh, to August 2nd. It'll be August 2nd will be our deacon nomination meeting. We'll be having that after the service. Unfortunately, there's only one way you can nominate a deacon. We, we try to think about this in different ways, but according to our bylaws and the precedents we want to set for the future, it, it only... Um, by ballot only at, uh, while you're present here at a business meeting. And so August 2nd, after the service on Sunday morning, is going to be the time where we'll be nominating our deacons, continue to pray that God would lead us to the right men to serve us. Uh, the second announcement is uh, Brother Justin tonight uh, is going to finish 1 Corinthians 15 on Sunday nights. Uh, and then we are going to take a pause from our Sunday night uh, service for the foreseeable future. And, and what we're going to do, and part of the reason we want to do that, is we're going to use uh, some of our workers um, from our nursery ministry and our two to three year old ministry uh, and use some of those workers to help us have a nursery and two to three year old extended session uh, on Sunday morning. And so for Sunday mornings now, we'll be able to have uh, workers and help for all of those three and under. So hopefully if you're uh, a young couple or you have kids who are around that age range and uh, just your three-year-old or under, it's been, it's been difficult for you to get to church with them. Uh, we want to know we've, we are trying to provide uh, workers for that. And we think by suspending Sunday night services, it's going to help us get enough people. And, and so on. As school comes back and as uh, all of these things start to happen in August, uh, our kids' ministry will, determine, uh, will be determined by how many volunteers we can get uh, for those who are comfortable attending church and those who are comfortable uh, watching our kids. And so um, as we get those who are willing to serve, then we'll be able to accommodate um, with our children's ministry getting back to the way it is, and we look forward to that. Um, so those are the two announcements I have. Uh, and so I hope you're uh, in your room with your Bibles, opening it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For some of you, this morning might put you right over the edge because uh, we're not going to be in verse 6 in 1 Thessalonians. We're actually going to be looking at the second half of verse 9. And so uh, I'm really messing with your world now, I know. Uh, there's a, a graphic in your notes, and while I doubt I can fully satisfy you with a, uh, an explanation, I do want to at least assure you that I'm not picking these verses arbitrarily. Uh, instead, what's happened is we've considered the power of the gospel in verse 5a two weeks ago. Uh, last week, we looked at the character of gospel ministry or the testimony of the gospel word in verse 5b. Uh, and so, uh, and also in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, well, really in verses 6 through 9a, what you have is the progress of the gospel word, and verses 9b and 10 is the effect of the gospel word. And so I would like to look at the effect of the gospel word before we get to the progress of the gospel word, which means we'll be going a little bit out of order. So again, for all of our OCD folks, 
I'm sorry, but this is good for you, okay? Uh, let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 and 10 and really look at the second half of verse 9 today. And a sermon entitled, You Turned. Uh, verse 9 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to, uh, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, uh, Lord, we thank you that you have graciously um, brought us together. Lord, that we have been reminded, Lord, that this... Um, it is your effective call in and through your gospel word that is applied by your Holy Spirit, Father, that brought us from death to life and drew us near into your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for reminding us that uh, in your word so far through the study, Lord, that we know we've been called to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you that this morning you've called us um, to come together we may offer you a prayer of sacrifice and thanksgiving. Uh, we pray, Lord, that everything that we do uh, has magnified the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that you might send your Spirit among us by your grace so we might hear this word as it really is, Lord, a word from God and not from man. Father, I pray that as I'm the one expounding your word this morning, that where I do not rightly communicate your word, that those words fall harmlessly to the ground, they would not be received. But Lord, where I rightly divide your word, Father, and, and rightly preach it, I pray that your word would be received as the very word of God. That our hearts would be convicted, we'd be moved to worship you more and more in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, someone once wrote... Life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. I don't disagree with that. Life is a highway. And actually, what we're going to see this morning is the first Thessalonians were on the highway to hell. But they turned to God from idols and served the living and true God. And what we have in verse 9 really is one of the simplest definitions or examples of Christian conversion in the entire Holy Bible. Look at verse 9b again, what Paul says here, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned. You were heading down a highway heading in one direction, and then you turned and headed into another direction. You were worshiping idols, but you turned and started worshiping the true and living God. Well, I want to examine a little bit more in detail this picture of Christian conversion. And what I want to do is I want to consider exactly uh, what the Thessalonians turned from, who they actually turned to, and then consider the turning just a little bit in regards to our own lives. And so, what do the Thessalonians turn from? Well, we know that. The answer is clear in Scripture, even in our verse. They turned from 
idols. The Thessalonians turned from idols, which is going to cause us to ask the question, what is an idol? Well, really, we see this defined in a couple ways in Scripture. Uh, simply, if we had a, the most basic definition of an idol would be this. It's an image made by human hands. An idol is an image made by human hands. When you find the word idol in Scripture, most often this is what it is referring to. An image made with human hands. They are physical tangible forms or representatives of some sort of deity. But ultimately, they are things made with human hands. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 28, we read, And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, we read, For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. Idols are merely objects made by people. There's no life in the image. Uh, but it's not really completely accurate to say that the ancients ever really believed that the life was in the image itself. The Canaanites didn't necessarily believe that their idols were living, breathing things any more than the Thessalonians thought that their statue of Aphrodite was living and breathing. But they believed that the gods these idols represented, they believed that they existed. That's the point we find in the scriptures. And yet, uh, these terms, yes, they are made by human hands, but they represent things that do not ultimately exist. They believe their idols had real power because the gods they imaged through their idols, who they were responding to and serving through their worship, they believed that they were really there, that they were able to respond and somehow make their lives Better. They were able to change their circumstances. They were able to bring about the desires that they longed for. And so the prophets weren't merely saying that there was no life in the image, but that there was no life behind the image. That the God it represented did not, in fact, exist. No more than a scarecrow has a deity living behind it. Paul, as a messenger of the true and living gospel and the true and living God, continued to expose idols for what they really were in his gospel ministry. They're simply the work of human hands. In fact, if you turn to Acts chapter 19, you'll find the account of Paul in Ephesus. And there he had a very successful gospel ministry and many were converted. But this gained the attention of the silversmith guild whose primary income had come from making idols of Artemis, shrines to Artemis. And when this specific silversmith, Demetrius, got fed up, he ensued a riot in order to pursue Paul and push back against Paul's success in turning people to God from idols. Look at Demetrius' accusation in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Look what he accuses Paul of doing. He says, Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. This was blasphemous to Demetrius. Not to mention that it really wasn't good for business either. 
In Acts 19, we've got Paul's inspired explanation of what idols actually are. They are representations of gods that are no gods at all. They have no real existence. This is the most common description of an idol found in Scripture. An idol is an image made with human hands. But it's not just an image made with human hands. In fact, I would say an idol is also a delusion made by human imagination. An idol is a delusion made by human imagination. Idols are images, again, of things that ultimately don't exist. They're made with human hands, but they are figments, therefore, of the human imagination. They're representing something that isn't actually there. Therefore, Jeremiah continues to write in Jeremiah 10, Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in them they are futile a work of errors in other words idols are lies they epitomize deception as paul puts it uh, with his usual candor in the book of romans chapter one he says professing to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible god into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things who exchanged the truth of god for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen See, idols are delusions that strengthen our own self-deception. They are creations of the human imagination used to usurp God's sole prerogative to be revered and worshipped. In fact, idols are not even simply figment delusions made by man's imagination. They are delusions that are given by demonic influence. Idols are delusions that are given by demonic influence. And that's not my opinion, so says Paul. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verses 19 through 20. He says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Behind each and every idol stands the father of all lies, the devil himself. Uh, Those who serve and trust in idols ultimately serve and trust in the demonic. See, idols feed the delusion that we can worship who we want, how we want. That's the lie. In fact, idols themselves promise us protection against those things we fear the most, against things like the loss of our wealth, or the loss of our loved ones, or the absence of pleasure and purpose, or some other form of suffering or deprivation. But friends, idols are a delusion. Therefore, idols are powerless to actually do anything. They don't do jack. They can't. They don't. They won't. Jeremiah continues in Jeremiah 10 by saying, They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they, do, they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Do you know how utterly impotent the idol is? This picture is an idol that has to be carried and, again, 
not just the image itself, but the non-existent deity behind it. It is an impotent, powerless, useless idol. That's the picture painted in Scripture. Isaiah summarizes it well in Isaiah 45, 20. He says of idols, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. A God who cannot save. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't speak, they can't walk, they can't bring about good or evil, and they cannot save those who worship them because they do not exist. Even the demonic beings hear this. One might retort, well, demonic beings are behind these idols and they must have some power there. Well, granted, but demonic beings, remember, they are created beings that have derived power. They have no power in and of themselves. None. Idols are powerless. They cannot help you. They cannot save you. And if you think this doesn't apply to you because you don't have a statue of Artemis in your house, you're wrong. Listen, graven images and carved statues are merely the symptom of the disease. So how do we know if we have idols in our lives? That's the question I want to present. How do we know if we're guilty of idolatry? I want to suggest to you two sets of two questions. Two sets of two questions. And the first set of two questions is easy. The the two questions are, what do you serve and what do you trust? So so just peel back. Let's just uh, think about this together in practical application. And let me ask you, what do you serve and what do you trust? See, the question isn't, do you have a gold statue? The question is, what do you serve? What do you trust? That's the question, and this applies to each and every one of us. This is really the heart of idolatry. It's serving and trusting in something other than God. You don't have to have a statue. You don't have to have a shrine. You just have to trust in something other than the true and living God. Serve that, and you're an idolater. So the question is, it's not that do you have a statue of Aphrodite. The question is, do you serve something like the Hollywood conception of love? Do you value some romantic idea more than the glory of God? Is your faith in your spouse or your love interest to make you happy, to deliver you from the pangs of depression? Or maybe you worship the delusion of perfect parenting. Uh, Maybe your joy and contentment is completely placed in the behavior of your kids. And so when they do well, your idol is appeased. But when they're not doing well, you're in trouble. Do you trust in something that is ultimately powerless to secure you peace and joy like your financial portfolio? The list goes on and on. What do you trust What do you serve? That's the question, and the list is endless. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with romance. There's nothing wrong with biblical parenting or desiring our kids to behave well. There's nothing wrong with even financial success. It's not those things. It's our trust in those things and our willingness to serve those things in place of the true and living God. So that's the first set of questions, but I want to deliver another two sets of two questions that I believe is a little bit more penetrating for us. 
The question is, the first is, what am I attempting to build with my hands? What am I attempting to build with my own hands? I remember, if we remember that an idol is something that is made by human hands, with human hands, what am I attempting to build in my own strength? What am I saying? Lord, thank you for bringing me this far, but I'll take it from here. What do I believe that I can accomplish in my own power and in my own strength apart from the true and living God? Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Amen? The second question is, not only is what am I attempting to build with my own hands, but what is a possible delusion of my imagination? What is a possible delusion of my imagination? That question may sound a little confusing, but let me ask this. What I mean is, uh, where are my values out of whack with what the Lord values? Where is my mind not being transformed by the word of God? I'll tell you, friends, if, if you start lifting up these rocks, you might be surprised by how many idol, idols you actually find. What are you trying to build with your own hands? And where is your thinking in line with God's revealed will in his scripture? So what do we do? I would offer two exhortations in the midst of this. If God's exposing idols in your heart right now as a Christian, I would, I would offer you two exhortations. One is to pray. Pray that the Lord would reveal these to you. Pray as David did in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. The second command is in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul's writing to Christians, by the way, because the temptation is ever present to return to the idols from whence we've come. This isn't, I believe, I repented of my sin. Now that that's done, I can carry on my own way. No, daily, I have to trust in the Lord Jesus. Daily, I have to repent of my sin. Daily, I have to walk in that. Daily, I have to keep my eye out for those idols in my life that my heart is tempted to produce, and I have to flee from them. That's what we do. We flee. And listen, we don't just flee anywhere because if we did that, we'd run smack dab into another idol. We flee to God. We flee to Christ. And that's what we find in our text, right? And we've seen what they were turning from. Now let's look, who did they turn to? They turned to God. You turn to God from idols. Uh, Paul doesn't say you have turned from idols. I'm so proud of you now that you are no longer idolaters. No, he says you turned from idols to God. And listen, friends, if you haven't turned to God, then you're still worshiping idols. I mean, as we've considered what idolatry actually is, I want us to consider how God is everything idolatry is not. He is everything that idols aren't. Unlike an idol, God is not an image made with human hands, nor is he a delusion of human imagination. Far from it. In fact, if we would look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 and 15, look at what the word of God says. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. 
And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice, verse 15. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you. They saw no form because God is spirit. He is not an image that can be made. No representation is allowed. God did, however, reveal himself, though, through word and through deed. Now, unlike idols, which are merely images made by human hands and delusions created by the human imagination, God is an eternal spirit who transcends creation. That's who God is. God is an eternal spirit who transcends creation. Yes, uh, he, he is eternal. Let's think about this. But however, he's also imminent. He's drawn near. God has come near to his people. He's spoken. He has worked out miraculous deeds in time and space in order to bring about the redemption of his people. The problem is that any attempt to carve an image, any attempt to fashion an idol, would ultimately diminish the glory of God, not represent it. It diminishes it. He's greater than the most creative imagination. His beauty far surpasses the most beautiful creations of our greatest artists. His wisdom infinitely exceeds our wisest thoughts. Nothing in all of creation can actually possibly represent this God. But us, I think about this. Uh, isn't it ironic? Human beings are actually the only sanctioned image of God. I want to say that again. Think about this. Human beings, you and I, we are the only sanctioned image of God. We're created to be his image bearers, to represent God uh, in his creation. But the ironic part is, is that the image of God has attempted to make images of God. We being the image of God, we have attempted continuously to make images of God. In a sense, Idols are our attempt to abdicate uh, our responsibility. At best, we are tempted to attempt to make an image of the true and living God. And if we were, we would still be ultimately tempted to make something that should be us. Something the Lord's already made. We should represent God. We should be his image and likeness before creation designed to glory and the magnificent. But we rebelled in the first act of idolatry. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We did this when we worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. And isn't that what happened in the garden? We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Friends, human beings have been idolaters ever since. But there is only one God, the true and living God. And this God has made himself known in his word. God has made himself known in his word. He's done this throughout redemptive history, right? Think about this. Think about what happens when this God takes on idols. This is the true and living God who's the same God who defeated a whole pantheon of idols when he brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. He's the same one who, when his ark was taken into a Canaanite temple, decapitated and cut off the hands of their idol god, their chief god. That's our god. 
That's our true and living God. Isaiah 45 explains this with clarity. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God besides me. That Isaiah really in chapter 45, he says this truth over and over and over again in this one chapter. I am the Lord their God and there is none like me. But then he concludes this entire chapter with really a taunt or maybe an invitation, uh, depending on how you look at it. When the Lord himself says at the end of Isaiah 45, he says, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. So now he's inviting them. He's saying, bring your idols, come forth, come before the true and living God and show me. He says, yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have I, have not I the Lord? And there's no other God besides me, a just God and a savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved. And really that look is the idea of what we see in our text this morning to turn. Turn from idols and serve the true and living God. Turn and be saved. It's the gospel in Isaiah. He ends by saying, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. What is that word? That every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. See, unlike the idols, God exists. He alone is God. There is no other. So the basic confession of the Israelite people in Deuteronomy 6 was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And the basic command of Israel was, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. No other gods before the Lord. No graven images made by human man. Uh, represented the delusion of the depraved human imagination. No. So back to Jeremiah, he summarizes it well. He says, silver is beaten into places. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The word, work of the craftsman and the hands of the metalsmith. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And that's who the Thessalonians turned to when they turned away from idols. And friends, at the outset, I said this, it, this is a picture of Christian conversion. Turning from idols to God is Christian conversion. That, that's what it is, plain and simple. To turn from idols to the true and living God. So Paul preached in Lystra in Acts 14. He said, you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Likewise, in Athens, Paul calls them to turn from their idol worship. He says, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So Paul preached these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. And to repent means that you turn from idols to the true and living God. And friends, Paul is still preaching this to us this morning. The Spirit of God through the Word of God is still preaching this same thing to us this morning. Turn from your idols 
Listen, there's only one true and living God. And I want you to listen carefully or else you might think that you just need to turn from one idol to another. You might turn to a God that you believe is the God of the Bible, but is actually a figment of your imagination. A God that does not ask anything of you, but to simply be there to support whatever lifestyle you choose for yourself. A God who is more like a genie in a bottle than the God of Scripture. Friends, there is but one true and living God. If you do not turn to him, you'll simply turn to another idol. This one true and living God has sanctioned an image. He has one sanctioned image, and that is people. Men and women created in his image, in his likeness, created to love and obey and serve the true and living God. But as Romans 3, Romans 3 tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. There is none who does good, not even one. All people have turned aside to idols. And the cost of that turning aside is eternal death. I don't say that lightly. The wrath of God is coming. You don't have to believe it for it to be a fact. And those who continue to worship idols, to continue to reject, reject the true and living God, they will receive upon themselves the eternity of, of the wrath of God. For all eternity, they will receive God's wrath upon them. But listen, the image we have marred, the image-bearing responsibility that we have rejected, friends, it has been restored through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect image of God. As Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of God's person. That is who Jesus is. So that all who serve and trust him serve and trust the true and living God. Jesus Christ fulfilled our obligation to image God perfectly. And he didn't stop there. He actually took upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve for rejecting our responsibility to do so. Oh, we know that God accepted his atoning sacrifice because on the third day, he raised him again for our justification. He is even now ascended into heaven. So we read in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1 that we wait for the Son from heaven. The one that God raised from the dead. The one who's protecting us from the coming wrath. Those who are in this Son have life eternal. Those who continue to worship idols have no hope. This is actually a theme that runs throughout Scripture. Joshua told the Israelites in Joshua 24, a very popular passage, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. If it's the gods of the nations, serve them. But if it's the true and living God, serve him. Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. You can serve one and only one. And so listen to me, folks. Christian conversion is turning to the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and away from idols. And so we'll conclude with the illustration we began with. Life is a highway, and everyone is on it. There are no pit stops. There are no off-ramps. There's not even a shoulder. This highway has two lanes. Two lanes. Everyone is on it. They're heading one direction or another. The picture we see this morning is that some turn to God from idols, and in doing so, they're saved from the coming wrath. The other lane, 
People serve and trust images made with human hands and figments of their own imagination. And those are truly on a highway to hell. Two lanes, two alternatives. The question this morning, church family, is simple. Which lane are you in? Have you turned to God from idols? Or are you trusting and serving in images made by human hands and figments of your own imagination? I pray that you would know that. And I pray that if that's you this morning, if you know that you are, you're serving man-made things, you're serving idols, that you would simply turn. The Lord would grant you repentance and faith, and you would declare now, it's time for me to turn from trusting and serving in these idols made by human hands and figments of my imagination that fuel my own self-deception and turn and serve the true and living God. Would you pray together with me? Gracious Father, Lord, I know we have people listening to this this morning that are in two lanes. Father, some by your grace have turned to the true and living God, others by their own free will continue to reject you, continue to worship at the feet of idols. Father, would you please, by your grace, Lord, remove the veil from their eyes that they might catch even a glimpse of the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of his majesty and beauty, that they might catch even a glimpse of your love for them in Christ Jesus, and they might turn, they might know the joy of serving the true and living God. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you the invitation here this morning, church family. Again, if, if you're part of our church and you know that you have turned from idols to serve the living true God, uh, it, it, Scripture is very clear. Pray that God would reveal those idols that still cause and tempt your heart and simply flee from them. Flee from them. Flee from them to God continually, daily. Check your heart for this. I know we all have idols that we struggle with in our day-to-day life. But God is so much greater and he's so much more worthy of all of our attention and all of our service and trust. So that's my encouragement to you, church family. If the Lord's laid on your heart, repent, reach out to somebody, ask for accountability on on helping you serve the true and living God and turn from idols. But really, this is primarily an evangelical verse. This is a a verse about Christian conversion. So if there's anyone listening to this and you know that you've never really turned from idols to serve the true and living God. Friends, it's very simple. Simply call out to the Lord and ask Him to save you. Uh, we see this picture throughout Scripture of true Christian conviction. That the, the Spirit of God is working in your heart. He's causing you and He's bringing these things to light. Don't quench that. Bow a knee. Bow your head and, and ask the living and true God that He would save you. You just cry out and say, like the publican in the book of Luke, the Lord, dear Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You call out to him and then you, you reach out to someone and tell them what you've done. You reach out to someone and ask for help in how to live this Christian life. And I pray that many would be saved by turning from idols to the true and living God, hearing the truth from God's word. I love you, church family. I look forward to hearing from you. And I miss you dearly. Pray you have a wonderful week. Go and be blessed. God bless you.